Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. This season, we are partnering with She the People and highlighting their 20 for 2020 list of women who are changing the local and national political scene. She the People is creating a space for inclusive politics we have not yet seen, one grounded in love, justice, and belonging. Welcome to season three. We are so excited to have you back, or if you're new to the podcast, welcome to the BGG family. So meet Amy Allison. She is my dear friend and sister that is the founder and president of She the People, the national network elevating the political voice and power of women of color. They invite women of color to come together in person and online to tell their stories, host events, and build community. From the She the People Summit in 2018 to hosting the first presidential forum for women of color, Amy is using her platform to lift up other women's voices. During this time, I chatted with her to hear the inspiration behind She the People and the women on the list. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. We are just so excited to be partnering with She the People for season three of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast. You have just been such a supporter of ours since day one. So we're just really thrilled. Oh, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a match made in heaven. And we got work to do this year. We do. So let's start there. We have a lot of work to do. Tell us a little bit more about She the People and what led you to create this wonderful organization? Well, I'm so grateful that um, I was one of your first guests in your first season. And in the two years that She the People's been around, we have been telling a different story to the country about what our political possibilities are. Can we have uh, women of color play key roles as candidates and as key organizers? Can we can we embrace a politics that's intersectional, that isn't just about the economy or not just about gender, but uh, brings race into that? And we saw that we were able to influence conversations at the national level around issues of health care, student debt, the rise of white nationalism and others from a woman of color lens. And it has enriched the national conversation about the moment, the political moment. Can we elevate the importance of of women of color as voters, particularly in the battleground states in 2020? These are the states in the Midwest, including Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and um, Michigan, as well as the South and Southwest, Arizona, Texas, uh, Georgia, Florida. These are the center of the center. And it's like, you know, Democrats versus Republicans and women of color are one of four voters in these states. So an elevated turnout of women of color means big potential for uh, Democrats. So in all these fronts, She the People is there to drive uh, the and, and expand our political imagination and the power of women of color, um, you know, for this political moment and really for generations to come. So why do you think the involvement of women of color is just so critical to our government and its policies, especially what we're seeing right now when we're recording this, which is... March of 2020, things have gotten really wild in the first part of the year. I feel kind of seasick with the political changes and the rapid uh, way that the story has been evolving. Uh, Up until now, where coronavirus has actually 
uh, cuts through all the issues that we've been talking about. Um, you know, this is Women of Color's moment because if we look at 2016, the run-up to that election, there was virtually no conversation about the importance of black and brown women as the core vote for Democrats, as the leading advocates for a, a justice agenda. I mean, there was just, we weren't even acknowledged. Our presence wasn't acknowledged. And when we weren't a presence, in other words, the commentators on TV, the, the reporters, the, the leaders in parties, both at the national and the state level, top um, office holders, um, if they're not acknowledging the critical role of women of color in the electorate, stuff happens like happened in 2016, which was a deep, deep underinvestment. Black women and brown women, you know, kind of ignoring uh, the power of the vote, really obsessing about moderate white voters, even though they're a shrinking and very unreliable part of the Democratic Party. And so, you know, that that's what's at stake now is like, now that we're visible, and now that there's an acknowledgement, hey, you can't win a primary without us. And, and women of color did define the primary. It wasn't Iowa and New Hampshire's white voters. It was the Latinos and the black people, both in Nevada and South Carolina. They're the reason that we have the two front runners that we do at the moment, they're defining, they're defining the field. But more importantly, we look to November, we're also going to determine whether Democrats win or lose. So it's like now that we're visible, we're pushing the fact that we need deep investment and focus. The country needs to follow our lead. This is the bottom line. So two years ago, you and I and our respective, we couldn't have imagined no. what would have happened. No way. I mean, here you are, you have a successful third season of this podcast, and it's just so amazing. And, and, and I couldn't have told you back two years ago that we would hold a first presidential forum focused on women of color, that, that we would drive, like we would do the first poll on women of color in Nevada, that we're running a campaign to, to pressure party establishment and the campaigns to have a woman of color vice president. I mean, I was like, whoa, we are doing it. And the work is just starting. So super grateful um, for this journey so far. Yes. And you mentioned so many firsts from She the People. You are breaking ground in so many ways when it comes to uplifting women of color. And one of the things that you did earlier this year was you decided to highlight 20 women of color to watch. And it included organizers, elected officials, strategists across our country who will play such an important role leading up to 2020. And you just highlighted it, how women of color have dwindled this field down to the two candidates that we have now. Why did you feel that highlighting these women and organizations was so important? Because again, no one has thought to put women of color in the forefront this way like you did. Part of it is that, again, a lesson learned from 2016 and, and before that is women of color are leading the most powerful voter engagement effort in the country. And voter engagement sounds like an insider term, but it's basically who's registering new voters, who's speaking to voters who are most likely to be progressive voters, and where? Um, where are these women? So I always say, like, people know names like David Plouffe, you know, who's, like, got this, like, high-paid job as a consultant. He, he, he gets on cable news all the time to tell people things about politics. Here's what to think. But a white guy, six times less likely to vote for a Democrat than a woman of color. So why don't we have, why don't we elevate the voices, the leadership, the, the excellence, the strategic prowess, and the track record of women of color who are in these swing states. And that's what the 20 for 2020 list is all about. 
every single woman on this list, including yourself, I will just say, we put you on that list because including yourself have big audacious plans for registering hundreds of thousands of voters, knocking on millions of doors, protecting the vote, flipping state legislators, getting more women into office, um, which is really a, a central role that you're playing. And some of the women on this list are not famous. They're not well known but they're doing the most important critical work on the ground. So I wanted to compile a list and say to the rest of the country, look, these are the women you should be following, not just on Twitter, <laughs> but you should be listening to, you should be watching, because these are the women who are going to determine wins or losses. They're going to be, they're literally changing the the architecture of, of battleground states. And um, these are the most important people um, to watch. So this list of 20 for 2020, I'm very proud of. Now, these are all the women who were the movers and shakers. <laughs> it's, it's like very exciting. Oh, it's so exciting. And so one of the things that I loved, and I wasn't surprised, first of all, I'm really honored to be on this list when I got the email. It just, it truly warmed my heart. But I wasn't surprised to see that one of the things that you asked us was to list our plus one another woman that we wanted to uplift and it was so Amy, but it was just also so in the spirit of she, the people and what it stands for. So I'm curious to know who is your plus one? Ooh, plus one yes. is a really a nod to every woman of color that I meet almost to a person is humble. They don't, they don't try to talk about their own accomplishments but they are, they will sing from the mountaintops, you know, um, from someone that they believe in and they, they, you know, kind of uplifting their sisters. And that is such a beautiful thing that I wanted us to have a space to do that. My plus one is a woman named Noni Allwood who comes from a long corporate tech background, very successful woman who um, is from Central America and has been, came as an immigrant and is a uh, wonderful mentor. She works behind the scenes for me. She's on our executive advisory board at She the People. And I love her. And she has um, sent me messages late at night encouraging me. She has used her um, connections, her influence to, to guide me, to connect me with people. And she's one of those people who um, helped make She the People possible. So Noni, here's to Noni. <laughs> Oh, here's to Noni, here's to you, and here is to us highlighting these amazing, incredible black, brown, indigenous women who are going to be breaking barriers on the next season of the podcast. So thank you, Amy. Thank you. You're all a powerful force. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise and BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. 
is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com backslash BGG, that's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for the BGG listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash BGG. Our first guest of the season really needs no introduction. From her hit weekend show on MSNBC to her best-selling books, Joanne Reed is one of the top voices for women of color in television. We talk about how coronavirus is being covered in black and brown communities, the 2020 presidential election cycle, and advice for women of color to own their political power in November. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Joy, how are you doing? I am hanging in there. Um, We are safe and secure and uh, trying to stay that way. Oh, that's good. Everyone's safe. Yeah. So one of the things that I first wanted to talk to you about is obviously the news coverage right now is really focused on the pandemic. How do you feel about the response from the current administration regarding the pandemic? And for me, especially, we're not seeing a lot of people that look like us that are talking about it, particularly Black women, women of color, health professionals. And do you think that that is skewing the coverage a little bit on how the pandemic impacts communities of color? Well, it's interesting that you say that because um, I just have been getting a lot more references for um, for women of color, particularly Black women medical professionals. Uh, a good friend of mine, Mark Thompson, uh, just referred me to some doctors from Meharry Medical Center. Um, and we're trying to source those uh, people now because I think it's important that the conversation about this pandemic be had in a way that reflects what the country looks like. Mm-hmm. Because I'm also seeing a an associated alarming trend of, you know, Black folks in particular thinking, oh, this is not something that affects our community. Um, it's affecting our community, in fact, more in part because African-Americans, Black people, Latinos, we are more likely to be uninsured. We're more likely to be in poverty. We're more likely to be without a primary care physician. And so all of the, the things that make this illness deadlier affect us more. We live in states where the governors have not expanded Obamacare, so we're just more likely to be vulnerable. So I think we definitely need to have a conversation that looks more like the country. So I think that's important. We're trying to do that on AM Joy. Um, it's, it's, it's a matter of searching for not just medical professionals who um, are capable of doing TV, but who are just available because people are stressed, overworked, Every medical professional is working, you know, 20 hours a day. So it's a it's a it's a it's a hunt, but we're looking. As far as the administration's response to this calamity, it really couldn't have been worse. I mean, I think if you'd written a horror story about a presidential administration and a president who failed both to anticipate, to prepare for, and then to respond like a human being, much less like a president to a global calamity and pandemic, I don't think you could have even dreamed up. You know, I can, I really can't put it in stronger terms. It is a disaster. His response has been abysmal. He got rid of the office that was specifically devoted to dealing with pandemics in the National Security Council just because Obama created it. He got rid of the office in China that was there 
um, working on the idea of stopping and responding to pandemics. He fired the people he needed. He's hired C-listers, D-listers, people who don't know anything. Everyone involved is a disaster except one guy, Anthony Fauci, who he didn't hire. You know, Anthony Fauci has been doing the same thing at, uh, in terms of being a research scientist and epidemiologist since the Reagan administration. He doesn't work for Donald Trump. He's just the head of this task force, and he's the only one worth listening to, and Trump has basically silenced him. So, yeah, it couldn't be worse. Yeah, just everything. I particularly feel that Secretary Clinton said about him, you're seeing come true in so many ways. And I think she had like the most perfect tweet where she was like, don't take medical advice from the guy who stared into the solar eclipse. And <laughs> and her tweets are like so savage sometimes, but it really summed it up. But going back to when you were talking about the lack of access for healthcare for communities of color, something else that's coming to the forefront is the fact that we're actually seeing lots of people of color, especially black women, be turned away from getting tested because people are saying, oh, you really don't have the symptoms, you're not that sick. And it's again, bringing to the surface that when it comes to the healthcare of women of color, especially black women, that we don't get the same treatment, that our pain is still not seen as real pain. And that's also going to have just a negative impact too, do you believe, on how people of color are treated during the pandemic? Black women are, are healthcare providers who are especially vulnerable because they don't have protective equipment. Black women are very heavily populated in nursing, as are lots of women of color. When you go into the doctor's office or the ER, you'll notice a lot of the nurses are Black or Brown or Asian. And so, yeah, we're on the front lines um, in terms of that, but also, again, in terms of just not having um, adequate healthcare coverage. But when it comes to the way that doctors treat you know, human beings, Black women in particular and African-Americans in general tend to be perceived as having higher pain thresholds, um, as being able to handle pain and illness in a way that makes us more vulnerable. But I will say it's important to note that in this crisis, no one's getting tested. I mean, this is one of the situations where white Americans are starting to experience what it's like to be us, whether you're white, Black, you know, unless you are a celebrity or a politician with proximity to Donald Trump, it is very difficult to get tested. And that's a problem. Wealthy people, connected people are getting access to the test and regular folks are not. And that is an alarming, terrifying thing. Yes, I think you said that so well, that people are now experiencing how awful the healthcare system just is for black, brown, indigenous people. And I feel like I could talk to you about coronavirus, the pandemic all day, but now I'm going to do the plug for everyone watch AM Joy so you can get all the updates from Joy on everything that's happening. But I do want to pivot now to talk a little bit about you because I know our listeners are just fascinated by you. We're big fans of you here at the BGG with everything that you do with the TV show, being an author, a professor, there are so many avenues that you could have taken to talk about different subjects, but what drew you to the political end? Well, I've always um, had an interest in politics since I was a kid. Um, you know, I would trace it back to when I was in about sixth grade, aging myself, um, the, <laughs> um, the uh, Iran hostage crisis happened. And I just remember coming up and watching this new special on, on ABC that was originally a countdown to the release of the hostage or what was going to happen to these people that eventually became Nightline. And I remember asking my mom if I could watch it and she let me watch it. 
And I was just fascinated with it. And from there, I, I was, you know, just devouring every aspect of news um, that I could watch. I would sit up and watch Nightline every night, um, really pretty much until I graduated high school. Um, I would sit and watch the Sunday shows, you know, the McLaughlin group. I was just fascinated with it, partly because my mother was a very political person. She was a diehard Democrat. My father was a Reaganite. Um, he wasn't an American citizen, but had he been, he would have been a Republican. And so, you know, the few times he was around, they would debate politics. Um, when my mom would have these great dinner parties at the house and have all our church friends and her friends over, they would debate and talk actively about politics. And we were allowed to be around and be in the room and we absorbed that. So I just grew up in a family that was very much about politics. My mom took her, us to vote with her so that we could really get engaged. She took um, us to see Shirley Chisholm when she came to New York, when she came to Denver mm. where we, we were growing up. Um, and my mom just revered Shirley Chisholm because of course, Shirley Chisholm was half Guyanese. My mom was Guyanese. So they had that in common. So we, I just grew up that way, very much into politics, very much aware that voting is critical and very much a lover of history. And so I think, I, you know, I didn't plan on becoming what I'm doing now. I originally was going to be a doctor, honestly, um, I'm West Indian. So I told, I made the mistake of telling my mother when I was probably maybe 10, 11, 12, that I would be a doctor. And so you don't tell a West Indian mother that that's what you're going to do. Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, it kind of got upended. I, I was more interested in writing and politics than that, writing short stories than, you know, but I would already, I was committed to being um, a pre-med. Uh, but unfortunately, my mom passed away when I was 17, right before I went to college. And that just ended any thought of me doing um, medicine. I just didn't believe in it. I didn't have faith mm -hmm. in it. So I needed something else to be. Um, and so I kind of bopped around and tried different things. When um, my husband and I had our two kids and moved to Florida, I didn't speak Spanish well enough to stay in consulting and I needed to do something else. So I'm starting over. I figured I'd do something I enjoyed. I went to work as a TV news writer for $7 and 25 cents an hour um, and kind of took it from there and sort of went in the direction of what I had always loved growing up. You talked about your mom and Shirley Chisholm. Who are the other women that have inspired you? Uh, Carol Simpson and Gwen Eiffel are huge influences on me because growing up being a news junkie, Almost everyone I was watching were white men with Sam Donaldson and it was, you know, Walter Cronkite. It was all white men <laughs> and all the three newscasts at night were white men. Um, and you rarely saw women, let alone black women in the space of news. And those are two of them. Obviously, Shirley Chisholm is somebody that I've always revered too. You know, I inherited that from my mom. But in terms of the job that I'm doing, this, sadly, there just aren't that many Black women who've ever done this job. So the, the few that have done it, I have mad respect for. Tamron Hall, who's also a friend, um, is, is a hero of mine because she was able to, you know, get herself all the way to the Today Show anchor, the you know, Today Show co-host um, spot, which I thought was amazing. And she advocated for me to be able to, you know, get a show in her hour when she left that hour. And of course, Melissa Harris-Perry, who really pioneered the weekend uh, news spot that I'm doing now. I sit in her office now, which is always interesting because um, she really you know, laid the foundation for what I'm doing. It's one of the things that I love so much about you is you have this 
platform and you use it to uplift other women. And we have to be honest, that's something that not all women do, especially when you're looking at the news, it's still so male dominated. But you know, when you go to AM Joy, you're going to see someone that looks like you and who's going to give you that perspective as a person of color in this country. And one of my favorite segments on your show that you did a while ago is Essence and the Black Women's Roundtable. They did their poll of the top issues for black women in particular. And I thought it was just really nice to see that on MSNBC, on a mainstream show where it's like, okay, this is what you're hearing over here about what people care about, but this is actually what the base of the base of the Democratic Party is caring about. So candidates, you need to pay attention to this. And just from your point of view, with so much has shifted now, we're down to two Democratic presidential candidates both white men. We started off with a field of just young candidates, black, brown people. We don't have that anymore. How do you think, especially for women of color, our listeners, what's the best way for them to make sure that these two candidates, is going to be down to one candidate shortly, are paying attention to the issues that black, brown, indigenous women care about? We are the voters, right? We mm-hmm. black women vote at the highest rate of any demographic in the country. We're the most loyal Democrats. Um, black women picked up uh, Joe Biden's campaign and dragged it out of the grave. Okay. Yes. Facts. <laughs> <laughs> <That's- laughs> tell a black woman thank you every day. Yes, Jim Clyburn gave him that endorsement, and it was very important. And Jim Clyburn was um, the savior, is considered the savior of Joe Biden's campaign. But you have to remember who actually voted. Uh-huh. who actually voted were Black women. The people who answered that call were Black women voters. And we, um, as Glenda Carr will tell you, when we vote, we bring three other people with us. So when we vote, everybody votes. We are the ones who encourage um, high levels of Black voting among African-American men, among our kids, our parents, et cetera. So that's mo- very important that the Democratic Party recognized that. And as Kamala Harris said uh, during the South Carolina debate, we don't get a lot of payback for that. We don't get a lot of payback from the party. Um, The party tends to show up about six weeks out from elections. I've worked on two national level elections um, because I did quit news because I was against the Iraq war and ended up working in politics. And on the campaigns that I worked on even, we had a problem where we could not, it was very difficult to get the party to recognize that they needed to be there before that six weeks out. They needed to be there for us as Black women constituents, not just as, you know, people they expected to show up with our aprons on and get in the kitchen and cook dinner. Okay. So I think that the minimum requirement is that Joe Biden, and who's the presumptive nominee, if he's the nominee, he should strongly consider making his nominee a Black woman. Because having a Black woman nominee is not about getting Black women people to vote. Black people will vote, but it's about it's, it's about acknowledging the importance of African-American women. It's about understanding that, you know, if he wants to win, he needs to supercharge the Black vote. Hillary Clinton got 88% of the Black vote, but she didn't have, she should have got 94%, 95% like Barack Obama did, number one. And she didn't have the turnout number. She didn't have the intensity. In order for Democrats to win, they need the intensity of the Black vote to be high. And Joe Biden does have some of that going for him already because Black people want Trump gone. But the way to supercharge that intensity, which is the most important factor for Democrats to win the White House, Black woman nominee. I think he should very strongly consider doing that. And if he doesn't, I think it's a huge error. 
Yeah, and she, the people, they did their poll, you know, of who they thought should be the woman VP, and Stacey and Kamala topped that poll, which did not surprise me. And then there was an article I read where they said, Steady finds that Stacey Abrams would be the best person to pick for VP. And I'm just kind of like, well, I also didn't need a study to tell me that she should be topping the list. She's amazing. But even with everything you just said, I appreciate it because we need to keep saying it because so many people still think that an Amy Klobuchar would be fine. And I'm having arguments with so many people. I'm like, that's not going to energize people, especially black women. It's just, it's not. But you hear a lot from Democrats and from upper level sort of Democratic strats. Well, the black vote is already there for us. We need to motivate other populations. You hear that a lot. And I think in part you hear it because some of these strategists don't want to leave their uncles and aunts that are Trumpies behind. And so it's personal. Um, I wrote a book called Fracture in 2015. And part of the argument I make in the book is that the Democratic Party has never emotionally gotten out over the fact that they lost white working class voters to Ronald Reagan and to mm -hmm. Richard Nixon. And they have been, you know, begging, pleading um, on their knees to try to get white voters back all of these decades instead of recognizing that black voters are who's here for you. Black voters are who votes for you. And they're not satisfied with that. They want white working class voters back so badly. They'll do anything. And what winds up happening is they make these appeals to white working class voters and a majority of white working class voters still vote for Republicans. And that will happen mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. I will just make a prediction on this podcast right now. The majority of white voters will vote for Donald Trump. The majority of white women voters are highly likely to vote for Donald Trump. They've been voting Republican since, the since 1968. I see nothing in the data. I see nothing that leads me to believe that will change in 2020. And so chasing these voters is, a, is, a, is, is, you know, it's about an emotional desire, not about reality and not about data. So just keep in mind, if you're sending a message to Black America that after a white male president, then there will be a white woman president before the president you nominate is, the, is from the group that has been the most loyal and devoted to you. That is a, not just a slap in the face, it's a punch in the face. And if Democrats do that, if they nominate, you know, a, a white man um, or a white woman, you're telling black voters to go to hell. And if you want to do that and you still think you can beat Donald Trump doing that, good There's luck. just, I know I have these arguments. You're having these arguments with people. I remember I was in a group chat and this one guy, he was doing the whole, we need to win back the white voters in the presidential election cycle. And I was just telling him, you know, yes, in like 2018, we did see a lot of white suburban women vote Democrat, particularly for women Democratic candidates they liked, but this is a different ball game. And he just kept going back and forth with me. And then finally, I dropped that graphic about how Democrats haven't won white voters since the 1960s. And then he just went belligerent on me. But I'm like, those were those are just the facts. And it has to be about knowing who our base is and expanding that base, especially when it comes to the rising American electorate, which is women, young women, black, brown, indigenous women. And I hope for all of those people who are consultants and whatnot, they're listening to the podcast, listen to what Joy is saying, because at the end of the day, that is how we're going to win, concentrating on the base and expanding the base. So we're going to take you into our final question, Joy, our signature question that we ask all of our guests. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening who are saying, I want to be just like her? 
I would say um, the things that I used to tell my students uh, when I was teaching um, at Syracuse um, was very simple. In order to succeed, um, in order to do the things you want to do, especially in this era when digital, uh, when social media has really leveled the playing field and made it a lot easier to access media, to access um, prominence and, and have a huge voice, is number one, mind your writing skills. Like my core skill is not to be a television personality, it's to be a writer. That's what I primarily consider myself to be. And if you're a good writer, you will always have a job. Because every job, um, you know, whether I've been a managing editor and hiring writers or, or working um, as a producer or hiring producers or working with them, good writers always rise to the top because it's such a core key skill that, believe it or not, not a lot of people have. And being able to write coherently, whether it's writing a memo or writing a script, is so important. So please become really good writers with great vocabularies. That's number one. Um, the second piece of advice that I would uh, give to people and that I always um, um, give to people is not to be afraid to show up, right? You, you can't get an opportunity that you don't ask for. And so don't, you know, one of the, what, what do they say? I always want to, I wish I could for one day have the confidence <clears throat> of a mediocre white man. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, what they do is they just raise their hand and say they can do it. It's not that they can do it. It's not, I mean, look at Donald Trump. And then the third thing is when you do that and thing number three is be prepared. You can never go wrong researching more, reading more, having more background, having more information. You know, even when I'm doing interviews, I, I do a dossier on whoever I'm interviewing so that I can get them in. You know, a lot of times I'm interviewing people who it's an adversarial interview. So we have every angle covered. No matter where they go, we're ready for them. Those are some of my favorite moments on your show. I'm like, oh, can't trip up joy. You tried it. You tried it. Because they will try it, girl. And, they, and just because I worked in politics and I worked uh, in campaigns and I was a press secretary, I know they have talking points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, just be prepared, be competent, be a writer, and then ask for the job. Raise your hand. Um, you, you, you know, Chris Matthews always says this to me, you can never, you can never lose by showing up and you can never win by not showing up, right? If you're not there, if you don't raise your hand, no one will ever know if you're capable, but if you show up and you're prepared and you know, you're competent, you're always going to win. And don't be afraid just because there's nobody black in the room already. Don't be afraid to be the first black person in the room. You can do it. Have confidence in yourself. And that's what my mother always told me. There's nothing that you want to do that you can't do. Make sure to check out Joy every weekend on MSNBC with her show, AM Joy. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. Learn more about Amy and the women we'll be covering this season by visiting the She the People website at shethepeople.org. The BGG podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls. <laughs>